Well, amen. According to FDA.gov, there are an estimated 48 million cases of foodborne illness annually. Uh, that comes to uh, really around one to six, uh, one out of every six people in the country over the course of a year will contract some sort of foodborne illness. And that turns into 128,000 hospitalizations and 3,000 deaths. And although most healthy people are going to recover if they have some sort of illness in a short period of time, it is possible to develop chronic, severe, and even life-threatening health problems. And for that reason, the FDA has come up with a plan to help us. There's a four-step process when we're in the kitchen. Uh, We are to clean, separate, cook, and chill. All right. Uh, the first, of course, uh, we're going to focus really on the first two. When we talk about washing and cl- or cleaning, we're talking about washing our hands, washing service- surfaces, rinsing fruit and vegetables, and something that I didn't even think about, washing off the top of a can before you open it and pour it into the... And, you know, some of you ladies are, are doing this like I've been... Anyway, uh, you guys knew that, I didn't. Uh, secondly, we're, we're to separate raw meats from other foods and we're not to use the same cutting board back to back with meat and raw meat and vegetables and, and things like that. We, we even have, for my benefit, we have four that are multicolored so that I don't lose track of which I'm using for what. Uh, we're not to put uh, cooked food back on the dish that the raw meat was on and we definitely aren't supposed to use the marinades that were marinating the meat. Uh, and then cooking the food and then just pouring that marinade into a bowl and putting it on, on the table. Um, and don't worry, if you've come to my house, I haven't done that. And we say, okay, and, and of course, we, we need to cook it and, and chill it. Um, and, and what they say this does is it eliminates those things that create those foodborne illnesses. They It takes care of the viruses and the bacteria. In other words, it, they take care of the contaminants... That lead to those illnesses. Contaminants are defined as those things that soil and stain and corrupt and infect through contact or association. They are things that make what they are added to imperfect and impure. They are those things that are unfit for use or they make things unfit for use. By their introduction of unwholesomeness and undesirable elements. And you say, well, what does all of that have to do with our study in the book of Leviticus chapter 4? And very simply in chapters 4 and 5, we're reminded that there is a contaminant worse than bacteria and worse than viruses that create foodborne illnesses. The contaminant is, of course, sin. It is a contaminant. It contaminates anything and everyone it comes into contact with. And if it's not dealt with appropriately, it does more than just create an illness. It's the difference between life and death. It's also the difference between God's absence rather than his presence among his people. And by the way, as we'll see, the excuses like I didn't mean to or... I didn't know any better. Don't change anything. 
Because we learn in our text tonight that ignorance is not bliss. There is a note-taking guide in the back of your bulletin tonight, and there is an outline. And we have three points that we're going to look at. We're going to look at the pervasive, pre- uh, the pervasive presence of sin. We're going to look at the comprehensive conditions of the sin offering. And then we'll look at the definitive display of our substitute. And before we jump in, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you, by your spirit, allow us to appreciate the richness of your story of redemption, of which you have graciously made us a part. Grant us eyes to see and ears to hear Jesus, the one to whom this passage points. And may we all be changed from the inside out as a result. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word endures forever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Well, in chapter 4, if you have been reading at home in your family worship time or if you read ahead in advance, you'll know that a new section is being introduced. Um, The descriptions of the burnt offering and the grain offering and the peace offerings are complete and we're now moving on to the next offering, which is called the sin offering. And you'll notice as you read, rather than jump right in and begin to describe the offering itself, there's a little, there's a difference in how, uh, in how this is described. The Lord, back in chapters 1 through 3, jumped right in, described how the offering was to be, um, how it was to be conducted or how it was to be carried out. But in chapters 4 and 5, we notice a difference and the focus is more on the reason for the offering rather than uh, how the offering is to uh, be conducted. Look at chapter 1. Notice in chapter 1 and verse 1, it's introduced with this phrase, if his offering is a burnt offering. In chapter 2, verse 1, it says or is introduced with when anyone brings a grain offering. And then in chapter 3, It says, if this offering is a sacrifice of peace offering. But through 4 and 5, the introductory phrases change. In verse 2 of chapter 4, it says, if anyone sins. In verse 3, it says, if it's the priest who sins. In verse 13, it says, if the whole congregation of Israel sins. In verse 22, it says, if a leader sins. In verse 27, it says, if a common person sins. That's you and I, we're common folk. But if the common folk sin. And then in verses 1, 2, and 3, and 4 of chapter 5, it says, if anyone sins, if anyone touches, and if anyone utters. There's a, there's a change. Also notice, and it's important for us to notice, that there's additional language in in chapters 4 and 5 than were in the first three chapters. You'll notice that the word sin, if you go back and count the word sin or sins, not associated with the word offering, you'll see that it is used 17 times. You'll notice too that uh, words like atonement are used six times, forgiveness six times, guilt seven times. And the only one of those four words that's used in the first three chapters is the word atonement and it's only used once. So we have a difference. The first three chapters focusing on the procedure of the offerings. And here in chapters four and five we see the focus changes to both the reason for And the result of the offering that is being described. The reason for, of course, is the pervasiveness 
uh, the pervasive presence of sin. And then the result of being the purification of that sin. Let's look first at that pervasive presence. We, we get the sense of the pervasive presence of sin in several places in this longer text from 4.1 through 5.13. Notice first in verse 2. Sin is defined, as I was explaining to the children, is anything we do that the Lord commands us not to do and anything we don't do that the Lord commands we do. Uh, The Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer number 24, puts it this way. Sin is any want or conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a result, as a rule to the reasonable creature. In other words, it's God's, it is God that has determined what sin is. God has defined what sin is. He alone has determined the standard of right and wrong. And again, as I shared with them, He is that standard against which things are compared. He is holy, righteous, and good. He is the standard against which everyone and everything else is measured. And He has graciously, graciously revealed to us what is and is not consistent with His character... And what is, or what does, and does not conform to his character. He's been gracious in in revealing that through his written word. And he's been gracious to write that upon our hearts. But again, it's, it's him and not us. Our text also tells us that no one is immune to sin. As I've mentioned, the directions for presenting a sin offering are are given not for sins in general, but for specific sins that have been committed by, first, the high priest in verse 3, people as a whole in verse 13, individual leaders in verse 22, and the ordinary average person in verse 27. And then if there's any doubt at all in in the first part of chapter 5, he says, again, if anyone sins three times in the first six verses. So it's pervasive. But then our text also says that sin, whether committed actively or passively, whether we do something or don't do something, can be committed inadvertently or ignorantly. It is possible for you and I, we can choose to do or not to do something. But we can also sin, the word in the text is unintentionally. And again, it's used those four times To describe those sins of those four groups of people. So in other words, it's not only possible to sin, even though we don't intend to, it is possible to sin and not even know it. As one commentator put it, a sin committed unintentionally or inadvertently is contrasted to one done with a high hand or a deliberate defiant action. An inadvertent sin may be committed in total ignorance, such as unknowingly eating food that has become unclean, but can also include offenses that one commits accidentally or out of negligence or because of a weak will. So whether actively or passively, inadvertently or ignorance, it makes no difference. Every and all sin has the same effect. They're all contaminants. They all affect us. They all cause a state. Of uncleanness. Sin is pervasive. It's pervasively present. And how do we know that? Well the language in the text that is translated sin offering. 
can also be, and some would say is better translated, purification offering. It's a purification offering because the language speaks of an actual cleansing that takes place when the offering is made. There's a decontaminating and purifying effect or aspect to this offering. There is a... Uh, there's a... Well, it, it doesn't... Sin doesn't just defile and stain and pollute and contaminate people. Throughout Scripture, we see people, places, and things all becoming unclean due to sin. It has that wide-reaching effect. It's pervasive And we'll look more clearly at what constitutes holy and common and clean and unclean later as we go through our study. But for now, we we simply need to be reminded that what is holy and what is unclean needs to remain separated. There needs that distance needs to be maintained. Therefore, God is unable to dwell with a defiled, stained, polluted, contaminated, unclean people. And he is also unable to dwell within a tabernacle that is defiled, stained, polluted, contaminated, and rendered unclean by those sinful people. It's a pretty significant problem. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know when I say that we live in a time when the pervasiveness and the potency of sin is downplayed and ignored. We live in a time that if something's legal, then it must not be sin. Or we even like to say if it's not or if it is illegal, as long as it's socially acceptable, it still must not be sin. We live in a time when right and wrong is relative or are relative. We live in a time when sin is subjectively and arbitrarily defined by each and everyone. We live in a time when we compare ourselves, again, the the illustration with the children, we compare ourselves to one another. And what happens when we compare ourselves to one another? There are times when we aren't as good as we should be, but most of us aren't as bad as we could be, especially we're not as bad as them, whoever them are, is. We live in a time when sin has been reduced to habits and hang-ups and mess-ups and mistakes, and they simply need to be overcome. And of course, when sin is reduced to nothing more than a hindrance that gets in our way of reaching our potential or experiencing our best life now, the only thing that we need to do is pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and follow and follow the, the best ten steps to a better you that are offered in TED Talks or in self-help books that can be on your doorstep within 24 hours through Amazon. And unfortunately, we can hear them in sermons in many church services. But brothers and sisters, the reality is God alone has objectively defined or determined what sin is. He and he alone has determined that. And, And who 
we compare ourselves to is important because we aren't being measured against one another. We're being measured against a holy God. A holy, righteous, and good God. And we all fall short of His glory. Every one of us. We don't just have habits and hang-ups. We don't just mess up or make mistakes. We are depraved. And our sin pollutes us. It stains us. It defiles us. It contaminates us. And it renders us unclean. And leaves us not only at odds with, but an offensive to a holy God. No one is immune. Sin is pervasively, pervasively present in and around all of us. And it doesn't matter if we intend to sin or not. As I mentioned, I don't know. I didn't know any better or I didn't mean to. They don't count. Ignorance is not bliss. There is no sin so small or unintentional that doesn't taint us. And we need to keep that in the forefronts of our minds. But fortunately, our text doesn't leave us there. Even here in Leviticus, it doesn't leave us here. Graciously, there are God provides comprehensive conditions for a sacrifice. A, a sacrifice that, that was established by God for the people to do what they couldn't do for themselves. I've already mentioned there are four people or categories mentioned in this chapter. And the text says that at the point when the person or the group realized their guilt for their particular unintentional sin, or when the sin which they had committed was pointed out to them or when or made known to them or um, that, that they had become aware of, when, when that took place... There were particular procedures to follow. And those procedures were determined by the extent of the contamination that had taken place. And the extent of the contamination was determined by the position or the person who sinned. In other words, the higher or more important the person may be or the position was, the greater the contamination or defilement that took place due to their sin. And there were some common elements, as we've noticed in our study so far, there were some common elements of these uh, across these four groups. One, an animal had to be sacrificed. Blood had to be shed. Uh, two, that the hands of the worshiper were placed upon the animal. And so we have uh, that familiar position of identification and guilt transference, even here in this offering. Uh, the f- a third, the fat was burned on the table of burnt offering. Uh, For blood was poured out in all four cases, poured out at the base of or what was left over was poured out at the base of the table or altar of burnt offering. And finally, the worshiper in, in any case did not receive any of the meat back or any of the animal back. But there were some differences. And interestingly, uh, the first two share some things in common and the last two groups share something in common. For example, in the case of the first two, when the sin was committed by the high priest or by the congregation as a whole, the guilt was upon the congregation as a whole. So when the high priest, because the high priest was the representative of the people uh, and because he he led and he, he served as the head of the body when he sinned. 
that sin or that guilt was placed upon the people as a whole. And of course, when the people sinned, they would sin either because the elders had led them into some sort of sin or because they had disobeyed or done something that the, the elders had asked them not to do. Either case, the congregation as a whole sinned corporately. And of course, their guilt was again placed upon them. And in either case, an unblemished bull had to be offered. The blood that was sacrificed was taken, the, the finger was dipped, the priest would dip his finger in, would go into, into the tent of meeting. So far, everything's taken place outside of the tent of meeting. They would go into the tent of meeting. They would uh, wipe some of the blood on the horns of the altar of incense that was inside. And then they would sprinkle blood either on the veil or in front of the veil. And there's some disagreement about or discussion about whether it was in front of or on um, I, I tend to think it was on. And then they would take the rest of the blood and, and, and again pour it out. And then the rest of the animal was taken outside of the camp and burned in an area that was considered clean or had been made clean. Now for the other two groups, it was a little different. Again, we've, we were within the veil. Um, but now when we get to the other two groups, the individual is considered guilty. So it's not an unblemished bull, but it is an unblemished male or female goat or sheep. And then that blood is spread on the horns of the altar of burnt offering. It's not taken inside to the tent of meeting. The remainder is still poured out. And then the rest of the body or the rest of the animal is given back to the priest for a meal. And so we have these differences. And interestingly, also in the case of common folk... If they didn't or couldn't afford the goat or the sheep, they were allowed to bring two birds and one bird would be offered as a burnt offering and one was to be offered as a sin offering. And the question is, what is being done? What's going on? And of course, the obvious answer is that a substitutionary sacrifice was being made for sin. What was deserved by the sinner is is happening to the animal. Sin was deserving of death. And so that that animal was dying in the place of the worshiper. Instead of the worshiper's blood being shed, it was the sacrifice's blood that was being shed. So it was through the sacrifice that atonement and forgiveness were offered. And it's very important to remember that this sacrifice, by doing it, didn't cause God to do something that he didn't want to do. God set it up this way. This is what he desired. And so when they brought that offering, forgiveness, he granted forgiveness because they had done what he had asked them to do. Now, while that sacrificial substitution, that that substitutionary sacrifice was a part of it. It's actually the purification that was the primary element of this offering. If you remember, the burnt offering dealt with propitiation. This deals with, the sin offering deals with purification. In other words, while the burnt offering reconciled the sinner to God, the sin offering purified or washed or cleaned not only the sinner, but the tabernacle as well. As as a matter of fact, a very strong argument is made that it was particularly the tabernacle that was in view in this sacrifice. So not only did the sinner have to be pure and clean, but the place of worship had to be pure and clean as well so that God would remain present among his people. Now, quickly, a couple things before we move to the last point. 
first, we, we must never kid ourselves into thinking we sin in isolation. We must never think that our sin only affects us. We are a part of a body and our sin affects everyone around us. And we would do well to consider the larger context of our relationships, of our family, of our marriages, of our friends and of our church body. When it comes to sin. When it comes to facing the temptations we do, when it comes to that struggle with the sin that so easily entangles us, we need to keep in mind the larger context of our relationships. We don't sin in a vacuum. And also, in line with this, those as we consider leaders, as we move toward particularization, leaders need to consider, or those who aspire to be leaders as well, need to consider the stricter accountability and judgment they all face as well. Secondly, in this passage, I think we notice something important, and it's that we see guilt leading to knowledge of what had been an unintentional and ultimately an unknown sin that led the individual to confess. It was guilt. And brothers and sisters, we need we need to hear this, that it's okay to experience guilt. Now, I'm not talking about inappropriate guilt. I'm not talking about unnecessary guilt. I'm not talking about guilt of sins that you have not committed. I'm not talking about guilt that you have experienced. I'm not talking about guilt that comes from uh, someone who has um, sinned against you. It's inappropriate guilt. we, We shouldn't feel guilt for sins that have been perpetrated against us. But... I'm talking about that genuine, appropriate guilt for the sin that is rightly experienced because we have offended the holy God. That guilt is okay. We should not prematurely rescue one another from feeling that guilt of that sin. Because it is that sin, excuse me, it is that guilt that drives us to acknowledge and confess our sins. And it's when we confess our sins that we find forgiveness. Which brings me to the last point. The definitive display of our substitute. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. And I simply want to read to you these passages. um, One we've already heard from tonight during our New Testament reading. But I, I want us to hear from the book of Hebrews. Consequently, he... He being Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, 
Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Yeah, amen. We've said weekly, as as we've been going through this study, that we did not offer any of these sacrifices before we came in. We didn't have to offer those sacrifices because of what Christ has done for us. It was Jesus who was the definitive display of a high priest. He didn't have to offer, sin, offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And he has, he has sat down at the right hand of the Father having purified sins. And he is now, even now, interceding on our behalf perpetually. He was the definitive display of a substitutionary sacrifice. His blood being shed that we might be cleansed of all our sins. The stains are removed. We are, we are now white as snow. His life was laid down for us. His life that was laid down for us outside of the camp. He has done it for us. And... Let us not forget that having been justified and sanctified, having been declared not guilty and set apart for holy use, we are now, in Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, temples of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. So what has God done? God has cleansed us so that God might dwell in us. All of us are to live in a manner worthy of our calling. We've been purchased and cleansed. And therefore, any sin, even the smallest unintentional sin, grieves the Spirit within us. We are temples of the Spirit and we need to be continually cleansed and praise the Lord that because of Christ and His ongoing intercession for us, when we feel the weight and the guilt of our sin or when, when others gently make our unintentional sins known to us, as they should, we can come to Him, we can confess our sins and we have the promise that He is faithful to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There is no sin so small that doesn't need forgiveness. And you've heard me say before, but there is also no sin so great that it cannot be forgiven through the atoning work of, of Christ at all. We sang this earlier. Let no one caught in sin. Let no one caught in sin remain inside the lie of inward shame. Feel the guilt. Christ has taken your guilt. Don't feel that inward lie. Fix your eyes upon the cross. Run to Him. Run to the One who showed you great love and freely, freely bled for you. Rejoice 
in the once for all sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ who has covered our sin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we would now.